How to create a glitch. Destroy the context. This is a summary episode of how to create a glitch in the Matrix monologues drawing from a number of episodes on the subject of decontextualization as a technique to create a glitch. Part 1. Context. Context is the foundation of uniformity. It is context which preserves the meaning of what we experience within the gamut of our intersubjective space. It is usual for people to make statements or do things which are ordinary, if we contextualize their actions. The truly unusual takes place at the wrong time or in the wrong place. There is nothing more to observing a glitch than observing something out of time or place. So, what is the foundation of context? Context is based upon ordinariness. It is based upon routine, or habit, or system, or organization. It is based upon schedule. All of these things intermingle to create our expectations for what is and should be. Observing a reality which is truly unusual requires nothing more or less than destroying the context. How does one destroy the context? First of all, what is the context? Context is continuity. Context is the common sense, ordinary reasoning behind everyday things. Context is enclosure. Context is how we understand the meaning of statements, the intentions of others. But context is also malleable. It is not some uniform predictive rule. It is interactive, shaped by the intentions and emotions of others we interact with. Context is how we rationalize the actions of others, how we create a space for their intersection within us. Imagine that one walks into a room and sees someone doing a particular thing which is odd or unseemly. Now, one might discover later the explanation for that thing by speaking with someone who knows the person. One might attach context at a later time. But in the moment, when one observes the strange event or occurrence, one is captivated by its fundamental oddness. This experience tells us a few things. First, it tells us that context can be created at any time. Second, it tells us that context arises organically. What I mean by that is, that which is unexplained demands explanation, and people act unintentionally, organically, towards that end. But, what if context was an illusion? What if it is the only thing separating a reality which is discontinuous and disjointed, from the one we perceive as everyday life? What if, oddness, is the true nature of reality? What if, ordinariness, is merely a facade created by this nebulous, concept of context? This is the true goal of glitching, to experience the true nature of reality, with all its oddness, incongruity and ambiguity, to recognize the fundamentally unsound structure and being of this world, to recognize that strangeness is in fact truth. In this episode we will be talking about orientation, exegesis, the dialectical process, and the cycles of bodily rhythm. Returning to chapter 1 of how to create a glitch in the matrix the complete series, it is now fundamental to say that an individual's expectation field is concentrated or released according to certain patterns created by the cycles of bodily rhythm. That is, the expectation field is concentrated the closer one comes to a release. These cycles of concentration and release produce patterns in the behavior of people, which make them predictable, and so, must be eliminated if one wants to see a glitch. That being said, 
It is also interesting and somewhat fundamental to note that these cycles produce patterns which are observable on a larger scale in the behavior of people in groups or otherwise. Thus, it is merely a matter of science to point out that women tend to converge in their period, just as smokers tend to feel the impulse and indulge at similar times. It is trite to say that deplaning passengers will all go to the washroom before they depart, just as it is common sense that we all eat, sleep, and fornicate around the same time. I would hasten to add that the predictability of groups owes as much to circumstance and environment as it does to the fundamental common biology we share, and the all is one, reality, of one consciousness. Now, exegesis of an experience, the unwinding of the contextually anchored, personal, to the somewhat more objective, impersonal, distanced, idea, follows the same pattern as the dialectical process of thesis and antithesis, because it is non-contextual. The gradual erosion of the personal, the elimination of context, does little to eliminate the gateways of the experience, but what it does do is make it untraceable so to speak, to those who weren't part of the initial experience. In other words, if A and B experience something, then regardless of how completely that truth is extracted, it will remain accessible to both. The same cannot be said for a stranger to the event however, who will only retain the higher meaning. In this way, the bare, personal, of an experience, is like a key, to a lock created by the puzzle of exegesis. Now, interestingly, what abstraction, or exegesis, also does, is make it possible to orient one experience to another, which otherwise would be impossible given the personal. What I am saying is, the clockwork, creates, by exegesis, giving one the ability to exist within a resonance space created in the vacuum of so many personal memories. A kind of consonance, which cannot be made in the purely personal world of our emotional associations. The key step remains the exegesis, the abstraction, the separation of the personal from the emotional, the sublimation of the tension of the moment into the tension between all things, finding a release in the patterns created by how so many pieces fit together, distanced from the moments which comprise them. But of course there is a price to all this. There is a trade-off. The personal that we discard through our method of exegesis creates spatial and emotional distance between us and others. It isolates us, because it makes our thoughts unrelatable, unattached, impersonal, subject to a process that might escape all those but those who were present. In effect, by eliminating the personal we are eliminating the patterns which comprise our expectations, our rhythms, our releases. To put it bluntly, exegesis without the personal is a form of thought encryption. It narrows our gateways, erodes our personability. The purpose of this episode is to link together our analysis of context with the directive to destroy the context in creating a glitch. Exegesis as explained in the previous episode is one methodology by which the personal can be removed from the experience, and the abstraction that follows, acts as a filter of experience by narrowing the gateways we maintain. But exegesis is an ex post facto method. It relies upon an after-the-fact elimination of the personal inherent to the experience. There are other methods which can be used to eliminate the personal, destroy the context, so to speak, so as to increase the likelihood of observing a glitch. Suffice it to say, there is nothing more to observing a glitch than seeing something out of time or place. 
Often the first step in experiencing a glitch involves cutting away the ordinary common sense explanation for what appears to be a trivial event. There are other ways to eliminate the personal, to abstract so to speak, in the moment. These include 1. Breaking continuity internally and externally with some historical pattern. 2. Loosening one's associations internally. 3. Creating an objective discontinuity in behavior. 4. Acting without objective or rational explanation. Breaking continuity involves recognizing the patterns by which we act, the physical motions, their timing, their spatial dimensions, and overturning them in the moment. It also involves, internally, eliminating patterns in thought processes or gratifications. It may be as simple as using your left hand to shake hands, or giving up your cigarette habit for a determined period, exercising the will to refrain. It may involve postponing that habitual dinner, or reorganizing one's calendar. It might involve altering the timing by which one executes one component of a familiar pattern. Loosening one's associations involves the method of acting against impulses, acting against ordinary associations. For example, instead of having a peanut butter and jelly sandwich one might have peanut butter and honey sandwich. Instead of habitually sitting down for a tea, have a coffee instead. Instead of visiting with your best friend for lunch, seek out that acquaintance with whom you have little in common. Visit that art gallery which you have no interest in. Take that route to work which you avoid out of negative associations. There are myriad ways to loosen one's associations. Creating an objective discontinuity involves adopting lifestyle choices which are antithetical to your values and telegraphing them to those around you through social cues. Acting without objective involves ritualistic and empty actions that undermine the normal timing of and patterns of behavior. All these associations, and patterns, are part of a web of associations constructed out of how you navigate the world, how you describe yourself, and how you describe others. They all assist in the assignation of meaning by context. Eliminating context is as much about navigating the internal as it is about redesigning the external. Both go hand in hand to produce new patterns which might reveal some deeper truths. Finally, esoteric objects as described in the complete series possess the quality of being pillars in the webs of association constructed around us by our actions and internal narratives. It is through these objects that we manifest, project and assign meaning to our experiences. In fact, the esoteric gate of the room, as a common strata, a common substrate, provides a context for experience. Just as a knife creates discontinuity, displaces the meaning which we understand and punctures the ordinary emulsion of context. Exegesis plays a preferential role in developing a web of associations, because it draws out the personal and reorients meaning. But no amount of exegesis can alter the importance of the pen or the incisiveness of the sword. Part 2. Decontextualization. In this episode, we will be elaborating one of the techniques or kinds of experiences which releases the tension of the group during a social exchange. In a previous episode, we talked about how humor is often the mechanism used by the group to eliminate social tension. One kind of humor blends taboo with humor through innuendo. This kind of humor represents the creation of a limited form of multiplicity through asymptotic discussion. This is to say that the humor approaches taboo but doesn't violate it. 
This type of humor represents decontextualization through linking of two meanings to an expression. The first is contextual and the second is decontextual. By linking these two together, one manufactures a decontextualization process which reduces the entropy of the discussion and the corresponding tension. The result is the mirroring of the group and tension release. In general, multiplicity is the result of the excess accumulation of tension in the group, manifesting as inundo, double entendre, multiple meanings, metaphor, allegory, which represents the decontextualization of meaning and reduction in group entropy. It is also possible, if entropy reaches some maximum, to observe the multiple plates of meaning in tandem, seeing doubles or doppelgangers. Violation of the taboo, rather than asymptotically approaching it, has the inverse effect, increasing tension and generating a non-consensual, zero-sum, reality. The resulting reality is driven by the four principles, namely substitution and displacement, union, conservation and polarity, often resulting in appropriation. Decontextualization through humor is akin to exegesis or abstraction for the individual, managing group social tension in much the same way. Now, the use of language in any conversation can create a normative structure as well. Conformity with the unspoken rules of a social conversation generates mirroring and tension release. Violation of those unspoken rules increases entropy, destroys cooperation and produces a breakdown in mirroring. The common unspoken rules act to create a commonality of convention, which generates a space for discussion within those rules. Social conversations are thus a fluid construction of conventionality, normative structure, conformity and mirroring. The breakdown in that commonality eliminates the corresponding cooperation and generates dialectical positioning, and hence, a non-consensual reality. At the heart of the commonality is consent to the exchange, which forms the central nexus holding together the conventionality and normative structure. When that consent is eliminated so too is the contingent structure, which is held together by the participant's consent. In this episode, we will be providing a taxonomy of an exchange between two friends. Initially, it can be said that all impulses are expressed whether in the here and now, this consensuality that we perceive, or in some dissonant consensual space. There is thus automatically a bifurcation, a duality created by the existence of the possibility of inhibition, which is to say, that, and I can only speak for ourselves, we perceive that those around us exist in a reality where every one of their impulses is expressed. Now, it is important to note here that that does not mean that you perceive it that way. For we can only speak of our consensuality. Now, we perceive that everyone around us expresses their impulses completely and without a dissonant space. That is to say, the bifurcation of our consensuality is created by our consciousness itself. Others, to us, beyond us, seem to exist in a unitary consensuality reliant upon the absolute expression of their impulses. It is axiomatic that we only permit them to enter our consensuality to the extent that they conform to our expectations. That is to say, we cannot permit that we repel by our limitations on our own selves. Thus, Although initially they exist in a state of pure expression, they enter our consensuality in a state of restriction. But, and this is important, that restriction only subsists in the consensuality we project, not in any dissonant projections. 
That is to say, so we negate, so they express. Thus, when they enter our consensuality, we discuss mundane things, which accord with our expectations, completely ignorant of the fact that this consensuality is not their consensuality and nor does it conform to the rules of their consensuality because it is our consensuality and they exist in it as a mere slice of what they are. So, what this means is, our dissonant consensuality is a space of their expression. It is a space defined by the effulgence of our consensuality, its broadening, its expansion. Thus, in that space, the subject matter of the discussion will center on the impulses that we have consented to, only to revoke that consent. A dissonant consensuality is therefore a space of withdrawal, of involution. Which is to say that that dissonant consensuality exists only to permit that other to reaffirm our consent through their affirmation. Now, we have a choice upon that affirmation. If we continue to reject in ourselves what they have affirmed in themselves then the subjective components of our consensual reality will be shaped by that rejection. The physical qualities of that other draw our aversion in that moment. And in that moment, the dissonant consensuality collapses, precisely because of that aversion. For in that aversion, there is a lack of directness, a convolution, which is stripped away by the present parsimony of the historical past. When that dissonant space collapses, all that is left is our consensuality, stripped of the involution of some past historical consent. As a result of this aversion, there is mirroring of that avoidance, acquiescence and a diminishment caused by the loss of some fragment of the other's true nature. In this episode, we will be talking about the use of orthogonal thought in the context of integration using a real-world example. Now, in past episodes, we introduced the concept of integration. However, what we failed to do is explain how integration manifests in a social setting. We will do that with this episode. Suppose for a moment, you are seated in a restaurant. Now, suppose, that at this moment, you have acquired, or it has been imposed upon you, the state of integration. What does this manifest as, exactly? In the state of integration, all impulses and reactive emotionality is instantly expressed. This means that if you are a receiver of orthogonal thought, that is you consume the product of some exegesis, some decontextualization, it will immediately manifest as reactive emotionality. Likewise, if you exhibit some orthogonal thought, it will also be met with some reactive emotionality. How does this manifest in practice? Suppose, you are seated in a restaurant and you have a thought which is antagonistic to someone around you. That thought will immediately, and unconsciously, generate a reactive response from that other. In fact, all antagonistic thoughts, all dialectical thoughts, all thoughts of any kind, immediately engender a reaction from others, unconsciously. This has the effect of preventing you from producing enough dissonance for an orthogonal thought chain. What do I mean by this? Orthogonal thoughts are decontextualizing. They are generated when there is a dissonant space for them. They aren't reactively responded to, immediately, but rather able to acquire some sort of momentum in the dissonant space. They attain this momentum by possessing a quality of tautology, that is to say, they aren't reacted to because others don't have the language. Let's take this podcast for an example. If one was to just start listening to this episode, without listening to any preceding episodes, 
they would find it difficult to generate a reactive response because of the degree to which the language or rather the use of the language is unfamiliar to them. The context supplied by previous episodes is necessary to develop a meaningful reaction to the content of this episode, largely because the meaning of the terms is contextual. Which is to say that without the ability to generate a reactive response the linear thought processes of the podcast can reach further into the unconscious minds of others. It is this quality of the orthogonal thought which makes it difficult for others to unconsciously react to the content of the podcast, arising out of the tautological nature of the narrative, which renders the thought capable, in the context of a dissonant space, to produce dissonance in others' behavior. Which is to say, that some level of pre-existing dissonance is required, some space, for the generation of effective orthogonal thought, but once it reaches this threshold, it becomes easier to solidify that space, that dissonant space, through language. Now in past episodes, I referred to this quality, which makes orthogonal thought difficult to react to unconsciously, insulation. You could also refer to it as space, in the sense of the space, to change orientation and manipulate concepts internally for solidification of some dissonant space. The generation of orthogonal thought, the solidification of a dissonant space, is the other side of the experience in the taxonomy of an exchange between two friends, explained in past episodes. Namely, when you consciously reject an impulse, which others have affirmed, they must consciously reject the dialectical impulse, which you have affirmed, and in so doing, they transform that dissonance into avoidance. And this is an important point, namely that for every impulse rejected, which was previously affirmed, there is a dissonant consensuality. Which means that your experience of the other is in their dissonant consensuality, which is why they appear so uninhibited to you. Thus, you are present in your dissonant consensuality, which is also their dissonant consensuality, but they are not truly present, as it exists for them as a separate space from their consciousness. And in that space, they exhibit a lack of inhibition, which is why they appear uninhibited. In other words, when you choose inhibition of a previously affirmed impulse, the result is that your experience of others is in their dissonant space, a space where they are not truly present. And their experience of you is in your conjoined space, which was extinguished by the loss of integration and the death of conjoined self. Part 4. Capitalism and Decontextualization. In this episode, we will be talking about the implications of orthogonal thought in the relation between labor and capital. It is the element of abstraction, the quality of removing the personal from the experience, pursuant to economic activity, in the payment of capital for labor, which promotes the generation of orthogonal thought. But, what are the implications of this orthogonal thought? We explained in previous podcasts how the removal of the tension from the experience, causes the experience to be appropriated according to social reinforcement, and the tension to be absorbed, so to speak, by the consumer of the product, separately. That is to say, that the tension causes reactive emotionality in some other, drawing that other more closely through continuity in their experience. If they fail to further generate orthogonal thought in response, the result is the absorption of dissonance in their tonic-dominant relationships. Furthermore, in other words, the payment of capital for labor alienates the payer from others, or it produces further orthogonal thought, 
which alienates some other from their tonic-dominant relationships. Thus, the existence of currency begets social alienation, for the payer of money for service achieves in that payment the alienation of themselves or others. Likewise, labor represents the sublimation of one's impulses, and in so doing manifests the removal of the personal from the experience. In other words, the fundamental foundation of capitalism is the alienation of capital from labor, the manifestation of dissonance in the relationships of the payer. In the alternative, this dissonance can be repackaged and sold to some further purchaser, through intellectual sublimation of the reactive emotionality caused by the receipt of orthogonal thought from labor. The isolation of the bourgeoisie is guaranteed by their capital. The translation of labor into dissonance in their relationships, or reactive emotionality, their integration and continuity. That is to say, capital begets emotional dysregulation, a lack of sublimation or inhibition. The abject expression of all heretofore inhibited impulses, with one caveat, that further sublimation results in radiation of that sublimation to the consumers of the product of exegesis. The division of integration according to class lines follows from economic activity that translates labor into capital. Integration is fundamentally the product of a lack of a capacity for sublimation and a possession of capital. In this episode, we will be discussing the repackaging of tension from orthogonal thought in the payment of capital for labor. In the last few episodes, we discussed how the alienation of capital from labor, the transformation of labor into capital represents decontextualization, abstraction, of the experience, and the generation of orthogonal thought. That is to say, that this decontextualization results in convolution in the behaviors of labor, pursuant to the use of that capital to purchase a service or product from some other. In this convolution, the manifestation of that secondary purchase represents an out in the behavior of the laborer. In other words, labor for capital is associated with convolution of thought and the generation of an out, which eliminates the tension separated from the laboring behavior, which is appropriated separately according to social reinforcement. We also talked about how the possessor of capital becomes a recipient of orthogonal thought as well, the tension from the laborer's labor translated to the possessor of capital. This means that the possessor of capital must also manifest some convolution in their behavior producing an out or they risk creating dissonance in their tonic-dominant relationships. This convolution can result in the generation of exegesis of that experience, the transformation of that tension into further orthogonal thought which radiates through the creation of a product of the experience to some other purchaser. Now, this process represents the transformation of capital for labor into exegesis, the manifestation of which is innovation. Thus, within the capitalist system, the possessor of capital achieves innovation through the conversion of the tension of labor into the exegesis of orthogonal thought. This produces the product of exegesis which becomes the embodiment of that innovation. In other words, the alienation of labor and capital generates opportunities for innovation due to the separation of the tension from the act, the transmission of that tension through decontextualization of the experience, to the possessor of capital. Orthogonal thought, exegesis of experience, was discussed in a roundabout way in episode 4 of season 7, which talks about the outsider effect in the production of new archetypes and narrative. In that episode, 
We talked about the creation of new archetypes and narrative has the effect of producing content for the assimilation of the group, generating new styles, identity and narrative. As nature abhors a vacuum, new archetypes and narratives will produce assumption by group members. The outsider effect arises out of exegesis of experience, the creation of new content from the transformation of experience into orthogonal thought through decontextualization. That content becomes the vocabulary of the future, the generation of new patterns and vocabulary for the evolution of the system. This new content is produced just as innovation in the context of a capitalist system, the division of labor and capital. The radiation of tension, decontextualized from experience, produces either reactive emotionality or further convolution and the generation of some new innovation, some product of exegesis, for consumption by the masses. Which is to say that capitalism does not just entail the alienation of capital and labor, dissonance in our tonic-dominant relationships, reactive thought in response. It also generates opportunities for innovation and the generation of product from exegesis. To start out, in the last few episodes, we talked about how capitalism, that is the alienation of capital from labor, represents through the decontextualization of labor, the removal of the personal from the experience, and the creation of an out, or, in other words, convolution in the thought processes of labor. Likewise, capital also is a recipient of orthogonal thought through the radiation of that depersonalization, must further decontextualize their experience, manifesting in the creation of some product of exegesis, which is repackaged for the masses. This whole process involves the separation of the tension of the laborer's experience from the underlying behavior, which is appropriated according to social reinforcement. Now, in this episode, we will be returning to our discussions of outs, to explain what they are and how they are important. First of all, outs represent the collapse of our consensuality. They are the gaps in our social spaces. They are occasions when we exhibit postural releases, we look away, we are distracted, we leave the room to attend to something, we smoke a cigarette outside, we go for a walk. These occasions are all circumstances where we release some non-consensual impulse, pursuant to the collapse of our consensuality. Which is to say that when an out manifests as a consequence of the decontextualization of labor, it manifests as the release of an impulse pursuant to our shadow self. What does this mean in practice? It means that those impulse purchases that we make as a consequence of having the capital to do so, further to our labor, are non-consensual purchases, the result of a process of decontextualization manifesting at the end of the chain as the entangling of action with our shadow self. Convolution was the word used to describe orthogonal thought, but it is also thought which diverts tension into and out in our behavior, such that we are able to maintain our consensuality through concerted effort. Now, to bring back the concept of emotional calibration, Explored in our podcasts on history and throughout this series, the impulse purchases that we make are further to the calibration of the population to a particular era in the past, the direction of those trends the result of systemic encouragement. These trends in behavior are generated by either a mirroring of some tonic, or b execution of the unconscious desires of some tonic, that is, as the dominant. Which is to say that postural releases, which are the most simplistic form of out, 
generate impulses which correspond to the expectations of the tonic. To bring it all back to capitalism, we know that when people are saving money, when they aren't spending it, they make fewer impulse purchases. This means that in that case, the decontextualization of labor becomes uncoupled from economic activity and the monetary supply no longer represents the economy of decontextualization. In other words, when people are making frequent impulse purchases, we see stronger economic growth, because decontextualization is funneled into the exchange of capital for labor, or products as the produce of labor. Capitalism only works when decontextualization is linked to economic activity, which means that decontextualization powers economic activity, when it is so coupled. All of this being said, it is interesting that new trends and styles are frequently objectively discontinuous with the present. In that, the decontextualization of style generates reactive responses, mirroring, and generation of trends. All of this leads me to conclude that the method of exegesis utilized by this author is economically dangerous because it alters the movement of decontextualization away from economic activity, providing a ready avenue for exegesis and generation of product, which decouples capital and decontextualization. Perhaps, we might consider abandoning a system built upon the alienation of capital and labor, in the sense that, every person is capable of removing the personal from an experience, radiating its tension outward to some other, producing further opportunities for exegesis, and perhaps, innovation. Perhaps we should view the social economy not as a mechanism for the meeting of expectations, but a parallel marketplace for the production of ideas. After all, consumer products are certainly desirable in a functioning system, but so too are new ideas, concepts and systems. Be that as it may, there can only be so many content creators and so many consumers. Economic conditions of demand and supply govern compensation. In any event, if economic growth is the ambrosia which ensures economic activity, the production of products and their consumption by consumers is a necessary evil, and the decoupling of decontextualization and capital becomes doubly problematic. This author wonders though, if perhaps our inflationary crisis, the rising of prices, has more to do with the gradual decoupling of economic activity and decontextualization represented by the alternative pathway proposed by this podcast, that is, the creation of product from exegesis, the conversion of one's outs into the production rather than the consumption of goods. Part 4. Restructuring. In this episode, we will be talking about using language to navigate the many-layered reality using a principle called multiplicity. Now, language is the fundamental foundation of uniformity. Every spoken sentence has a particular meaning which arises out of the context in which it is used. But, there are some meanings which remain extant irregardless of the context. The nature of these meanings is that they possess multiplicity. Multiplicity is the quality of a statement which gives it the ability to provide distinct meanings in distinct contexts. Also, multiplicity need not be reducible to the specific words used in context. Sometimes, multiple meanings result from the substitution of a word, or even multiple words, to a spoken or written sentence. The point is that these two kinds of multiplicity are different. On the one hand, the first case, you are talking about linear multiplicity because it requires no substitutions. 
In the second you are talking about vertical multiplicity, because the number of possible substitutions equals the number of words in the sentence or phrase. It is possible, using a dictionary, to create a multiplicity map, so to speak of a particular language. In this episode, we will be talking in particular about linear multiplicity because it is easier to direct. And essentially, what I am proposing is that you create a multiplicity map of the dictionary. So, for example, if a word has four distinct definitions, then it is given a coefficient of four. If it has two, then two. Once you know this number, for all the words in a sentence, you can multiply them together to get the linear multiplicity quotient, which is the number of distinct realities or contexts which that phrase can provide meaning. So for example, let's say that you say, I am sanguine today. The word sanguine has a multiplicity quotient of three for three different definitions, fitting three different contexts. Both I am and today have one. So the total multiplicity quotient is three. That is, that phrase gives you access to three different realities, contexts. Now, the multiplicity quotient is also accretive, meaning that if you started let's say in one reality, which branched out to three, and then branched out to seven, you will have a total of ten realities you have access to through your statements. In other words, using a multiplicity map and carefully crafted phraseology could allow you to navigate the multiverse through verbal speech alone. Obviously, to do this quickly would take a mind trained specifically to do this and it would be a skill that could take years to learn. To the average onlooker they would be making nonsense statements or word salad, but the point of the method is not about expressing comprehensible meaning, it is about obscuring it. If you wanted to broaden your passage through the many levels you would have to use words with higher multiplicity. If you wanted to narrow your passage through the many levels, you will have to use words which maintain a low level of multiplicity. Finally, it is important to note that esoteric statements have the highest multiplicity, which is not usually linear, but comes from higher meanings of the text. In this episode, we will be elaborating the technique explained in the last episode to navigate the simulation. In the last episode, we explained how by using words with multiple meanings in a sentence you can increase or decrease the multiplicity in your consensuality, thereby navigating the plate system. In this episode, I would like to further elaborate that methodology. In past episodes, we talked about consensual multicontextuality as a method of reconstituting your consensuality after it has been punctured by a dialectical actor's spatial non-consensuality, arising due to their dialectical consensuality. Contextual multicontextuality was described previously as a method of exegesis of one's experiences, the transmutation or assignation of higher meanings to the experience. The method we introduced in the last episode can also be used to give your consensuality multicontextuality. By using words to construct a sentence which possesses multiple meanings, you are expanding your consensuality distributing it, so to speak, because of the fact that you are expressing meaning which fits many contexts. The exegesis of consensual multicontextuality is the simplest form of multiplicity. Using experiences to construct a many-layered narrative that is above and supersedes the contextual. But crafting sentences with linear multiplicity is a far more effective form of this technique. Let me give you an example. 
Think of the statement I made a novel stand. How many meanings does this statement have? At least four, but possibly more. Now, once you've constructed such a statement, what do you do with it? You use it as a mantra, while allowing your thoughts to ponder its many meanings and if indeed it does have more than four. But assuming it has four meanings, then we can say that it has a multiplicity of four, corresponding to two distinct meanings of novel and stand. As you get better at this, find more meanings, and slide from one to another, you are beginning to restructure your consensuality. Thus, I call this process restructuring. As you learn and make new phrases, you should find your consensuality becomes easier to resurrect in the face of dissonant consensualities. Also, your goal should be to develop your ability to produce these statements with higher and higher multiplicity, generating a progressively more advanced multi-contextuality. The end goal of this process is the expansion of your consensuality, which, ultimately, results in a paradigm shift in the dialectical framework of this reality. Effectively, you are learning to become immanent, through this process, giving yourself the ability to withstand the dialectical degeneration of dissonant consensualities. In the past two episodes, we discussed ways of increasing the multiplicity of your consensuality. The purpose of this is to make it more resilient to dialectical degeneration caused by its exposure to dissonant consensualities. To reiterate, Restructuring is the crafting of statements which possess multiple meanings by way of linear multiplicity. That is, the words of the statement can be assigned multiple consistent meanings, which produces a statement with multiplicity. To start out, it is important for any non-native English speakers listening to understand that if you are translating this to your language, you will have to translate the statement in multiple ways so that the text becomes bifurcated, this is not a glitch, but an essential property of a restructuring statement. For example, the statement, I made a novel stand, must be translated in at least five ways, because the words in English, novel and stand have associations or meanings which are not the same as the associations or meanings in another language, say French. This means that the statement is untranslatable into one consistent, coherent statement in your language. It must be translated into the many meanings created by the multiple meanings of the words. This is not a mistake, it is an essential feature of a restructuring statement. That being said, in any language where words have multiple, divergent, meanings, restructuring statements can be produced. There are key words in every language which have this quality of multiplicity, though they are not the same in each language. The second thing that must be said is that if you add to the statement, what I call, compound restructuring, it becomes increasingly difficult to maintain all the meanings, as the context of the statement is revealed by the addition of further material. For example, if you add, I am sanguine, to the statement, I made a novel stand. The meaning is narrowed by the restrictions of the first statement, which delimits the meanings of the second statement. Nevertheless, if you use single-meaning statements, statements with less multiplicity, the result won't be necessarily to delimit the meanings of the multiplicitous statement. It really depends upon whether the added statements reveal a context for the multiplicitous meanings to attach themselves. Ultimately, the goal of restructuring is to destroy the context, as set out in the complete series. Thus, if your first language is not English, 
it will be obviously difficult to find a single translation of such a restructuring statement. Now, if you were to construct multiple statements and use them together as mantras, you would want to repeat each statement the number of ways that it has separate meanings. If you want to gradually increase the multiplicity of your consensuality, you would want to start with contextually meaningful statements, that is, statements with a single meaning, then move on to statements with two meanings, then three, and etc. Each statement would have the quality of multiplicity to a great degree, which would gradually step up your consciousness. By then following the ascending phase with a descending phase, that is from the highest multiplicity statement you have crafted down to the next highest, and so on and so forth, until you reach a single meaning, you are gradually expanding and contracting your consensuality. This exercise has the added benefit of teaching you to cope with the adjustment to your consciousness created by the process. In effect, it is almost a form of meditation, or altered state of consciousness. Thus, one must be careful in the particular fashion that they follow the process. The next step in the process of restructuring would be learning to communicate in multiple levels. Thus, finding a partner, you could experiment with compound restructuring. Using the various statements you have crafted, you could communicate those statements to a partner, linking your responses to particular restructuring statements, as best you can, to preserve all the meanings. Obviously, the first step to doing this, would be to create a particular lexicon in your language, a dictionary of words with multiple meanings, that you can use to craft your multiplicitous statements. Through this process, you could begin the creation of a dialect, based upon the maintenance of multiple meanings. But all of this aside, the goal again, is to preserve multiple linear meanings in communications with your partner. In this episode, we will be talking about the doctrine of stare decisis or precedent in the law and drawing into the discussion restructuring. Again, restructuring is the crafting of statements of multiple meanings, multiplicity, using words with divergent meanings in different contexts. The doctrine of stare decisis is an ancient legal principle which essentially equates with the doctrine of precedent. That is, once a decision is made, that decision can be used in the same, or even different contexts to decide an issue. Now, there's a connection between these two ideas. To understand that connection, we first have to understand the context in which the doctrine of precedent arises. Now, court decisions, especially in common law jurisdictions are made by the court only when the parties cannot agree on a resolution. That is, the court imposes a non-consensual reality when there are two dissonant consensualities. This means that in the context of that dispute, as between those particular parties, a non-consensual reality will be the result. But precedent tells us that the non-consensual reality that results from such action of the courts will be generated, again and again, in every context which matches, or is any way similar to the issue as between those two parties. Thus, orders of a court possess this same quality of distributive meaning as restructuring statements do. However, it is artificially created by the doctrine of precedent. Cases flow from context to context, determining the outcomes and generating non-consensuality. Restructuring statements on the other hand, are distributive of consensuality. They possess the benefit of fitting multiple contexts by virtue of their bifurcation of meaning. Precedent, 
which is distributive of non-consensuality, reduces the contradiction between outcomes created by distinct decisions in similar contexts. That is, it promotes the gradual erosion of dissonant consensualities in the system and their replacement with non-consensual spaces. Restructuring statements, on the other hand, contain within them the seeds of divergent or mutually exclusive meanings. These meanings, as they are distributed, must necessarily result in the creation of further dissonant consensualities. Now, another application of the compound restructuring technique would be literary restructuring. This involves first making a dictionary of terms with multiple meanings, then using that dictionary to craft a narrative in story form. Readers would not be told that the multiple meanings are intended, which would allow them to unconsciously choose a narrative stream created by the many meanings of the text. It would be a painstaking process to craft a meaningful narrative with only a limited vocabulary, but if done properly, it would preserve multiple narratives in the text, which would be revealed by the unconscious of the readers. Also, restructuring, or statements with multiple divergent meanings could be used to code instances of multiplicity. A statement with two consistent meanings which are divergent would signify seeing a double or doppelganger to someone who understands restructuring, etc. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it, please like, comment and subscribe.